I would like to share with you just three cardinal rules of my ability and longevity. One, surround yourself with people whose eyes light up when they see you coming. Two, slowly is the fastest way to get to where you want to be. And three, the top of one mountain is the bottom of the next. So keep climbing. That was Andre DeShields on stage at the Tony Awards in 2019. He won a Tony for his role in the musical Town, And, you know, even before that, Andre has had this incredible career in the theater. He originated the role of the Wiz in The Wiz. He was in Eight Misbehaven, Full Monty. And yet, despite those credentials, all of this attention, this acclaim that he now experiences, he says it only just began with this recent role in Town, and more specifically, when he won the Tony. I would say, prior to Town, I played the Magical Negro. I have no regrets about that. But that was the mold out of which I was creating a career. But all the while, and this is going to sound corny, but it's true, all the while I'm saying, why doesn't someone cast me for my mind, for my intellect? Am I really just another pretty face? (laughs) And it came together in Hadestown. Andre joins us today to talk about this new phase of his career, about being a long-term survivor of HIV, and why he says that everything is poetry and metaphor. So from The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A with the Broadway legend Andre DeShields. Your first Broadway show was called Warp, and it closed after 12 performances. After that, you were then cast in a Broadway musical called Rachel Lily Rosenblum and Don't You Forget It. That closed before it opened during previews. And so that was your first two Broadway shows. Were you worried at the time that that might be how your career just continued from there? No, by the time I had reached New York, I had spent sufficient years in the University of Hard Knocks to understand that there were tests, not unlike the examinations you have to pass in school in order to get from one grade to the next. There were certain tests that life was going to ask you to pass, so you needed to graduate. And I certainly was not unaware of New York's reputation as everything is done as tests by fire. And if you come out the other side of the fire, unscorched, unburnt, not crying, not complaining, then you've passed the test. And so you had previously gone through the fire in your life before that. Oh, yes. I mean, I I identify at age 76 as Afro-queer. It took a lot of fire. It took a lot of leaping through hoops that were on fire to get to the comfort of this conversation even. So, yeah. When would you say you became comfortable having a conversation like this? Many years ago. Do you want to know exactly? I would love to. I mean, you're 76 now. Like, was it in your 50s, your 40s? It was in my 20s. I just graduated from the University of Wisconsin. And the very month that I graduated, I booked my first professional show. 
that was hair in Chicago. So in terms of preparing for what we call life and how impatient we can be with the passing of time, we always think it's too fast or it's too slow. I learned at the age of 23 that time is longer than anything. So live your life accordingly. That means no stress, no fear, no expectation. Simply pursue those blessings, those experiences, those situations, whatever word you want to use. I'll use the word blessing. Those miracles. Pursue those miracles that have your name on it. Did that also mean no closets? Well, uh, the closets I have, I keep my clothes in. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll be more specific. When you were eventually cast in your third Broadway show, The Wiz, as The Wiz, I know that how we think and talk about queerness has changed, but were you like open about your sexuality at that time? Yes, of course. Of course. I say of course because this is after four years of college at the University of Wisconsin, which during the late 60s, early 70s, was one of the four hotbeds of political activism across this nation. The political veil of innocence that had been the 50s in this country was being torn from the eyes of the United States of America. I just finished my junior year abroad. When I went to college, it was de rigueur to do your junior year abroad. So I was 19, 20, going to school in Denmark, looking back at the country I just left, which was aflame in urban insurrection, or what, you know, what we were calling then riots. So this was my objective point of view. I just left a country where I was essentially the scum of the earth, for no, no other reason but the color of my skin. And I was studying in a country where I was treated the exact opposite, like royalty. People wanted to touch my skin. People wanted to touch my hair. They'd never seen anything like this immaculately groomed Negro boy. And of course, you know, I was buff, I was young, I was all that good stuff. (laughs) And it gave me a perspective. And that's all we need to get from one day to the next. All we need is perspective. Obviously, the appropriate perspective. But being, this is 66, 67, being in Europe in 66 and 67, where a 19-year-old black boy was exotic as Josephine Becker was in the 20s in Paris, it blew my mind. It turned my head 360 degrees and then more. So when I came back to the States, I was prepared for that graduation. The graduation being what belongs to me is on its way to me. Don't fret. Be as authentic as you can be. Know who you are. Be who you are. And so when I started the conversation talking about those two short-lived Broadway shows, that was kind of the perspective you brought to it. 
Oh, yes. These are just oh, yes. two small dots on the journey. I wouldn't call them small dots, but yes. Yeah, in retrospect, two of the golden steps on my journey. My perspective at the time I was experiencing that, there were two crumbs leading me on my journey. But now I've learned to receive everything as a golden brick, if you will, step on my journey. And I asked that a question about if you were out and open about your sexuality, because back then there were so few roles on Broadway for Black actors, and I didn't know if adding queer to that would make a short list even shorter. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, in the innermost of the inner cities. Life was no joke, although we learned at a very early age to laugh in the face of adversity. As a toddler, I would hear the word queer. I would hear the word fairy. I would hear the word faggot. I would hear, the, I would hear all of these words that were alien to my active vocabulary. I didn't know what they mean, but I was aware of the, the poison in them. And although I didn't absolutely know that I was being talked to, I knew I was being talked about. At the same time, I come from a family of 11 children. So I'm growing up in my own United Nations. And there were queer things about every member of my family. Not sexually queer things, but I had a couple of brothers who were off their rockers kind of thing, you know. I had sisters who were more masculine than the, the boys were. But you see, curiously enough, this all has to do with virginity. Again, I'm a generation, maybe two generations ahead of you. If you were heterosexual, but had never had a homosexual experience, you were still a virgin. If you were homosexual and never had had a heterosexual experience, you were a virgin. You're not fully sexually knowledgeable until you've eaten pussy and sucked dick. It's all an experiment. You have to discover what gets you aroused, what gets you excited. Before that, it's all experimentation. And just to clarify, are you saying that that experimentation was just a part of life and like encouraged back then? I wouldn't say it was encouraged, but I would say there was no there was no closet for me to come out of. When I finally left Baltimore and left home, and I understood at a very early age that if I was going to live beyond 25 years, I had to get out of Baltimore. Just as today, death looks into the face of a black male from the time he is born, either from drugs or police brutality. Now, one of the things I learned during my junior year abroad, and I traveled to many countries in Europe, not that these things don't exist in the States, but I had not traveled in the States. There are fields, endless fields of gorgeous flowers. In France, for instance, there are endless fields of sunflowers. 
those tall titan stalks with what looks like the sun on the top of them. Well, what I learned was in a field of sunflowers, a rose is a weed. So in a field of people who are experimenting with their sexuality, each of us is a distinctive idiosyncratic flower until we learn about the politics of monolithic culture, until we leave the initial diversity of where we are and venture into the world of sameness, of monotony, of rules, of regulations, then you find out, oh, then you start making your choices according to your sexual politics, which is why there's so many nutcases in the world. Oh, connect that for me. Why, why is that? Well, because we force ourselves into conditions that don't nourish us. Trying to be something we're not. Trying to be something we are not. Trying to be something we can never be. And trying to remain sane while doing that. It's not possible. You're either going to be healthy and authentic, or you're going to be existing and demented. Tell me this. While we're talking about sex, you were in New York City in like the sexual revolution that's happening. (laughs) You're jiving a bit for everybody. Come on, yeah. (laughs) But on top of that, you also had the unique experience of being one of the leading actors in a hit show on Broadway. You were the whiz and the whiz. Yeah. How did that affect your personal life? Like, did that, you have like people like fawning over you? Well, I, I'm going to take your lead by using the word fawn. People didn't fawn over me until Hades Town. Really? Yeah. Because Hades Town came about during the era of the pandemic when everybody, regardless of sexuality or any sort of leaning, was lost, was stressed out, was frustrated. I haven't heard that word used so often than during the pandemic. Oh, I'm frustrated. I'm stressed out. I don't know. I have to shelter in place, physical distance and that sort of thing. And people didn't have a clue of how to get from one, forget one day to the next, from one moment to the next. And my character, Hermes, had all the answers. He doesn't have all the answers, but I'm saying the character, right? He's calm, he's charming, he's still, he's knowledgeable, he's unflappable. So am I, Andre de Shields. So they confuse the character for the actor, and people fawn over me. In The Wiz, we're talking about 1975 when it opened on Broadway. That was midway through the decade of permissiveness, when it was okay for men to wear tight clothes, to have long hair, to be beautiful, to be available. I mean, today, I am an unreconstructed hippie. My formative years were the summers of love. 
67, 68, 69. I came to New York in 73. I came to New York, which is the citadel of self-expression. But when I came to New York, people would cross the street to get away from me. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm here because I can be who I am. I can be my authentic self. Am I really discovering that New York is provincial? And being in a hit Broadway show did not change that. Well, being in a hit Broadway show made me acceptable. To do that show, I I had to grow my hair out. I had to take the Maisei earrings out of my ears. I had to stop wearing halters. I had to take off my hot pants. I had to stop wearing my silver five-inch platforms. Because when I came in from Chicago, I was real. But New York wasn't. I think that's so surprising. Because I think we think of New York as the place where you can wear those five-inch heels, of course. Not in, no, no. Now, I take some of that as part of my soulful makeup. I mean, I am at my at the, the core of my being. I am idiosyncratic, let me put it that way. But when you wear the, the signifiers of being idiosyncratic, it's a bit much to take. I didn't, I'm not making it up. That's the world. I, I'm, I'm stuck on this thing you said about how people didn't start fawning over you until Hadestown. Yeah. In your 70s. And I'm stuck on that because if we were to erase Hades Town from your resume, I think that you would have a really remarkable career. I would. I would have an idiosyncratic career. You erase Hades Town, I would not have a Tony. Tony is what legitimized my idiosyncrasy, getting the Tony. Oh, he isn't untouchable. Oh, he isn't a leper. Oh, he doesn't have three heads. I think that that role also stands out on your resume because with The Wiz, with Ain't Misbehavin', you've played characters that are specifically black. And Hermes and Hadestown could be any race. You've got your finger on something. Although I would say prior to Hadestown, I played the magical Negro. I have no regrets about that. But that was the mold out of which I was creating a career. But all the while, and this is going to sound corny, but it's true, all the while I'm saying, why doesn't someone, (laughs) why doesn't someone cast me for my mind, for my intellect? Am I really just another pretty face? (laughs) And it came together in Hadestown. This is what's important about Hermes that you should include in that litany of descriptives. Hermes is a psychopomp. Do you know the term psychopomp? I don't. It's an ancient Greek word, but it's familiar to people who are delving into uh, mythology for whatever the reasons are. And of course, to do Hadestown, we all had to delve into mythology. The psychopomp, is the creature, and I use the term creature because that person is a god, not a human. The psychopomp is that creature who accompanies the spirit of a human from the earthly world 
to the world of the shades, which is Hades. Now you go to Hades for many different reasons. Orpheus, for instance, went to Hades to recover his love, Eurydice. Hades is also a kind of purgatory. You go to Hades as a shadow until you, you are judged to go to some permanent place. But you can only pass through that veil of the earth, from the earthly world to the world of the shadows if you are accompanied by the psychopomp, who is Hermes. I had already done that in my personal life. Everything is poetry, Jeffrey. Everything is a metaphor. We're much too literal in our existence. Now, I say that because when one understands that everything is poetry, that everything is metaphor, then sometimes it's all of a sudden, sometimes it's slowly. In my life, it's slowly, you might imagine. The meaning of every experience becomes voluminous. It isn't one thing. It's everything. Every experience is a miracle. Every experience is a miracle. You kick over a pebble. On the other side of that pebble is a miracle. You bump into someone on the street. If you turn over your shoulder, you will experience a miracle. When you said that you have already done that in your personal life, you've crossed over to Hades, are you referencing HIV and like losing partners to that? Yeah, well, that's, that's the literal part. But yes, I've had conversations with death. Yeah. And that is what teaches you that, as I said before, time is longer than anything. It's here before you arrive. It's here after you exit. So stop this, stop this madness about, oh, life is short. Oh, where did the time go? Oh, I'm wasting time. Oh, I'm saving time. You're doing none of, the, none of that. And your brushes with death have taught you that. I didn't say brush. I said conversations. There's a difference. A brush with death, which, which sounds transitory, sounds momentary than a conversation with death, where you say, ah, death, come in, sit down, let's have a cup of tea. Why are you visiting me? Are those conversations things that you have had in the past, or have they been ongoing for you? Well, obviously, they are very specific situations, one of them being the pandemic called AIDS. See, this idea of people being frustrated because there's a plague, you think, wait a minute. Were you, were you really unconscious during the 70s and the 80s? Do you really not remember that? Do you really not know how to get from one day to the next simply because there's a dis-ease on the horizon? Well, there are, there's a generation of us who know. We were there. And, and so... I know you've said you're not, you know, a fatalist about HIV AIDS today. However, now the treatments are so miraculous. Like back in the 80s and 90s, like, did you have more of a fatalist mentality? No, I was aware of it. My own partner for 17 years, as he was 
experiencing the tertiary stages of the dis-ease, asked the unanswerable yet inevitable question, which is, why me? And I said to him, I don't know, but I won't rest until I find out. And then, remember, everything is poetry, everything is metaphor. And then I knew I was not going to die from AIDS because I had set a goal that seemed impossible to find out why you and not me. Why does one survive and the other succumbs? My mission now, well, I have, it's it's a, intricate mission, but one of the tributaries of my mission is to break the Methuselah Code. Methuselah, who is reported to be the longest living person in the history of humankind, 969 years. You want that? Yes. I think nothing sounds worse to me. (laughs) You have to want to achieve the impossible in order to even get near to approach the vicinity of authenticity. Are you also saying that breaching the impossible, then like, what's the point? No, 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 no. I'm not fatalistic. No? And I don't misuse this term that everyone misuses nowadays, especially politicians, which is existential crisis. I do not believe that I'm living an existential crisis. And I do not believe the people who use that term have a clue as to what an existential crisis is. You know who knows what an existential crisis is? Peggy Lee. She's a gorgeous, velvet-voiced songstress from the 20s, 30s. She would be in what's called the American Songbook. And she had a huge hit. She had a huge with the song called Fever. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me, I get a fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. You don't know the song with Peggy Lee? I do, I do. Yes, okay, so you know Peggy Lee. Peggy Lee's had many hits. One that she wrote is called, If That's All There Is. If that's all there is, then let's keep dancing. People who claim to be experiencing existential crisis because they are suicidal or because they they don't know how to get to the next day or they're so frustrated, they're stressed out, are life's cowards. You know, we used to say, if you're not living on the edge, then you're taking up too much space. With the partner you lost, who you were with for 17 years, if you are going to live forever, do you have the desire for another romantic relationship like that? 969 years, that's not forever. I was rounding up, I'm sorry. Oh, no, see, see? 969. 969. 
It's important to know that, Jeffrey, because it's a palindrome. But I'm saying everything is poetry. Everything is metaphor, which means it's larger than you can even imagine. So do you have the desire for another relationship like that now? What other? You mean the one that I had with my 17-year? Yes. The 17-year relationship? No. No. Why is that? Because I learned so much about love, what it is and what it isn't. I think that surprises me. Why? Why does it surprise you? It surprised me too, but why does it surprise you? Well, well, how long have you felt this way? Well, since shortly after the death, I've only had three long-term relationships in my life. Each significant other has predeceased me. Now, in the world of this poetry and metaphor that I have presented to you, my love has killed them. So I'm through with that kind of love. Do you want me to answer the question you asked me, which was why I'm surprised? Yeah. I think that I'm surprised because you talk about living on the edge. I am. If not, you're taking up too much space. You seem like the kind of person who's open to all possibilities. And so I think that is why it surprised me that open possibilities, but not romantic love. Well, I know what romantic love is. I know what physical love is. I even, for a while, referred to myself as, what is that term? Sapiosexual. Intellectual love. That sort of stuff. Yes. Somewhere along the, the journey, it reveals itself as a quid pro quo equation. I love you if you love me. No. I love you. Period. Punctum. Full stop. I have, there are a few people in my life now that I have that relationship with. And it's liberating. Do you also feel the same way about physical intimacy and sex? I can't. You can't possibly feel that way about sex. Sex is about, you know transitory pleasure. Seven seconds, that's about, yeah, seven seconds, that's what an orgasm lasts. (laughs) You're not going to believe this, though. You don't have to have sex in order to have an orgasm. (laughs) You don't have to have sex to have an orgasm. It's true. It's It's even been turned into literature. Have you seen the play Bent? I have. Oh, in the second act, the two lovers from across the field have conversation, and it sparks an orgasm. And they're separated by a barbed wire fence. Yes. I'm not putting down physical experiences at all. But the physical world is an illusion. We know that. Are you concerned at all about, as you age, being lonely or who will take care of you? Anything like that? Well, I certainly I certainly entertain those thoughts. But what concerns me is how to continue the mission, one of my missions, of representing Black man majesty. And I use that as one word, but I capitalize B, M, and M. Black man majesty. Right. 
Now, man in that sense does not mean penis. It means humanity. Like when we refer to homo sapiens as mankind, that sort of thing. In the United States of America, the only way to understand who we are today is to always use as the beginning, as the starting point of the, point of the conversation, enslavement. There is no topic that we can intelligently discuss that isn't based in enslavement. One of the greatest problems we have in this country is the diminishing of the majesty of black humanity until that is recaptured, revitalized, embraced again. This country can't do anything but go to hell. I shouldn't say go to hell because people think I'm wishing that on America. This country can't do anything but not be its best because we spend so much time investing in the idea that some of us are superior to others. And that is a huge, huge misunderstanding. That's a huge mistake. It's a huge lie. And it affects everyone in this country, especially those who believe that there are those of us who are superior to others. And so when you say this is your mission, are you approaching that through your art and like performance or other ways? Through my art, yeah, through my art, through my everyday interaction with people, to how monstrously slowly I move, how meticulous I am with what I do, the roles I choose to create, the roles I choose not to create, the interviews I choose to do. Ah, well, thank you for saying yes to this one. I have to let you go, I know, but I appreciate you spending so much time. And I appreciate your having reached out to me for a conversation. And that was Andre De Shields. This fall, you can see him back on Broadway in the newest revival of Death of a Salesman. Then next week, we are back with someone who, I don't mean to overhype things, but someone who I think is one of the most consequential women in American history. From the moment of her arrest and trial in the 1970s to now, Angela Davis has remained a force, and next week she joins me here on LGBTQ&A, so stay tuned for that. Hit follow if you haven't already. I promise it is going to be a good one. We are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. Come find me, and I'll see you next week with Angela Davis. Bye.